I'm Josh Porter, and this is the Van City Church Podcast. The following teaching is part four in the series, Reclaiming Faithfulness as an Act of Rebellion. We often say that following Jesus is only done in the context of community, that is, the church. What about when church is hard and people are lousy? How do we commit to one another when we also hurt one another? And why should we? There was a time when scientists believed that addiction was mostly caused by exposure to addictive agents. So the thinking went like this. If someone tries heroin, then they run the risk of becoming addicted to heroin. And there is some chemical and biological truth to that. They know because they tested it on rats. Give the rats dope, offer them more, and they'll take it. But then came Rat Park. See, in ordinary lab setups, the rat housing, I'm sure you've seen in movies and TV shows, it's this tiny, cramped, isolated little cube. And during the 50s and 60s, in their effort to understand addiction, researchers would experiment on rats by fitting these cramped, isolated mammals, each with their own self-injection apparatus. The rats were taught to pull a lever to produce a flow of morphine, and they did. Some rats became so hopelessly addicted that they stopped eating and drinking and only took drugs until they died from self-neglect alone in their little cages. Scientists thus concluded that the availability and use of drugs creates addiction and all of its subsequent fallout. But then in the late 70s, Canadian psychologist Bruce K. Alexander put this mode of thinking to the test by building what he called Rat Park. Rather than isolating a single rat in a tiny, cold, sterile cube, Alexander created a luxurious rat fun world, 200 times the floor area of a standard laboratory cage. And in Rat Park, it was populated with all manner of rats as well as comfortable places to sleep and play and mate. And in Rat Park, there were two sources for water, one laced with morphine and one laced with nothing, just water. And what Alexander discovered is that in Rat Park, there were very few rats that sampled the dope water at all. None of the rats used the dope water compulsively, and not a single rat overdosed. But it gets weirder. To really put Rat Park to the test, Alexander and his team upped the stakes. So they had already confirmed what you might have guessed, which is rats prefer sweetened syrup water. And so they laced the irresistible sweet drink with morphine in an effort to sort of lure the otherwise sober rats to addiction. And they did the same thing for rats in their ordinary tiny cramped cages. The cage rats chugged the dope sugar water to death, quite literally. The rats of Rat Park continued to avoid it. Then the team gradually reduced the drug content of the sugar water over a period of days until the rats of Rat Park finally tested it, and finding it to be drained of its potency, they actually tried drinking it for a little bit. So they concluded that the rats were avoiding the effects of the drug, not the taste of the drug mixed with water. They even evaluated the effects of withdrawal by giving both the caged rats and the rats of Rat Park no choice but drugged water for a period of days and then presenting both groups with a choice between drugged water or ordinary H2O. On those choice days, the caged rats chose the drugs every time, while the rats of Rat Park chose to endure painful withdrawals rather than drink the drug water. 
Alexander and his team concluded that the rats of Rat Park were desperate to return to their sober social environment, while the caged rats had no such lives to which they could return, and thus they opted for the escape of the drugs. Rat Park seemed to demonstrate that exposure to and even use of addictive substances did not always create addiction in and of themselves. Instead, the cages our subjects are placed in create the necessary conditions for addiction to occur. Human beings are not rats, but scientists argue that Rat Park can teach us something important about connection. When people are healthy and given the ability to bond and connect with other people around them, in ordinary circumstances anyway, that's what they will do. But if people are cut off or distracted from their ability to bond with other people, isolated from other people, they will seek to bond with something that promises a reprieve from the pain created by lack of bonding or loneliness. In other words, loneliness can destroy people. And this is true of all personalities, whether you describe yourself as introverted or extroverted. All people are designed to connect with other people. You don't have to follow Jesus to believe there is something intrinsically dangerous about hyper-individualism and isolation and loneliness. Take the pandemic, for example. People loved to quibble over infection and death rates, but I suspect that it will be a very long time before we understand the devastating effects of forced isolation, especially on kids and teenagers. And of course, intense and ongoing research into the long-term effects of digital addiction continues to confirm what everyone more or less suspected all along, but we pretend isn't true, which is that smartphones and social media have maybe ironically, driven people further apart than they have ever been in human history. One report published by Harvard in 2021 found that 36% of all Americans, including 61% of young adults and 51% of mothers with young children, feel, quote, serious ongoing loneliness. And loneliness contributes to more than physical and emotional decline. The outrage culture in which we all live is a constant reminder that loneliness creates tribalism, which is the poisonous forgery of community. A community is about mutual love and a common purpose, but tribalism is about mutual hate and common enemies. Community about, is about what we believe. Tribalism is about what we are against. And since we all want to connect, tribalism offers a sinister veneer of that connection that we do all desire. And sure, it's corrupting and venomous and miserable to spend all your time looking for the next thing over which to come undone with rage and offense and fear. But at least it feels good to be on a side. But a side is not a community. In our little corner of the Christian movement in America, in the progressivism of the Portland metro area, it can often feel to us as if everyone is bailing out. My guess is that nearly every person in this room either knows someone personally who is deconstructing what once was their faith in Jesus, knows someone who has a loved one doing the same thing, or is such a person themselves. And consequently, deconstruction forms around itself a hazy promise of its own kind of community, a subreddit world for religious outcasts on the brave journey to jettison faith as they once knew it. 
But in the popular deconstruction herd mentality, the worst sin might be adhering to any code of objective right belief, which is what Christians down throughout history have called orthodoxy. So there's never any real community built around a shared way of life aside from the shapeless, indistinct fog of deconstruction itself. So with no shape or purpose other than no purpose, the deconstructed quasi-progressive outgrowth of the you know, post-evangelical, post-church movement can never seem to build up or maintain any real sense of community. But community forged in the fires of discipleship, on the other hand, willingly shares a clear common purpose, a code, belief with boundaries, right and wrong, orthodoxy. It is a way of life. So you come to the dojo to learn Kung Fu. That's why you're there. The boxing gym to box, the artist studio to paint, the ballet academy to dance, whatever it might be. And maybe other people there will look like you and maybe you'll make fast friends, but maybe not. Because you're not there for a supper club. You're there to learn from a master and become one yourself with other people committing their lives to the same thing. And it isn't open to the apprentice's interpretation. Apprenticeship requires submission to a master and the master's teaching. And you will be held accountable for your discipleship. And when connection happens around a shared way of life, it can become more than an affinity group and even better than a tribe. It can become community. Community is a word we often attach to the concept of church, as in my church community. We throw that verbiage around here at Van City all the time, on purpose. But what does it mean to actually practice community as a spiritual discipline? And how does the way of Jesus use community to combat things like individualism and loneliness and deconstruction and tribalism? Turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1, the first book and first chapter in the entire story of the Bible. Tonight is the fourth installment in our annual vision series, a time every single fall when we gather up as a church, we remind one another why we're here as we chart a course for where we believe God is leading us in the weeks and months ahead. One of the basic, most basic, fundamental and foundational Christian concepts, something represented all throughout the New Testament and the history of the church, is the practice of community. But community is complex, In one sense, we're doing it right now. Yes, this, the Sunday gathering, is and has been for centuries one of the primary expressions of community for apprentices of Jesus. We also have something called Van City Communities. Some churches call them small groups or or whatever, something similar. And it's a simple premise, anyway. The idea is, well, it's pretty tough to really connect with 100 people spread out across a big sanctuary over the span of two hours when, for a big chunk of that time, some dude is on stage talking to you about how you should really connect. And don't get me wrong, you can connect in really meaningful, significant ways on a Sunday evening. Those of you who serve Um, who show up early to make coffee or play in the band or lead lead the kids' classes. You know this more than others, I think. Serving is one of the easiest, best ways to really connect on a Sunday evening. But still, not with 100 people. 10 or 12 people around a dinner table talking to one another on the other hand. That is a great way to actually know other people and to be known by them. But even so... 
Many of you have already faced the harsh reality that a small group, your Van City community, is not a guarantee of intimate, meaningful relationships. A ton of you are in Van City communities. Some of, of you have been in those communities for years now. So do me a favor. Um, this could go well. Um, raise your hand if you've been in your Van City community for at least a year at this point. Wow, wow, a lot of people. Look at that. That's a whole lot. How about two years? Leave them off if you're two years. Three Four, five, six, seven, there they go, wow. That's amazing, seven years in the same community. The only reason that I've been in mine for eight is that we started it before we started this church. So I think that we can all agree that things get complicated. Jan, you know this very well, having been in a community for seven years with the same people. But if you've been in one for two months, you also know this to be true. And so that brings us to the scriptures. Let's look at Genesis chapter 1, beginning with verse 26. God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, over all the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful, increase in number, fill the earth, subdue it, rule over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, over every living creature that moves on the ground. So in the opening scenes of the Bible story, we learn a lot about God, really, but here's just a few things. One, he's the creator. He is the original and best artist. There's a lot here. But watch this. Look at verse 26 again. God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. So before all of this, before galaxies and constellations and dirt and volcanoes and aardvarks and reptiles and human beings, God already existed in eternal relationship. So some Bible scholars argue that God is talking to the second and third persons of the Trinity. Others suspect that he's talking to the host of spiritual beings, his divine counsel, what we would call angels. But either way, God is already in relationship. But then he makes even more relationship. He makes people deliberately and voluntarily hands them dominion over the earth project. He shares collaborative partnership and then he commands the people with whom he is in relationship to create more people and thus more relationships. In fact, as God creates, he repeatedly celebrates each stroke of creative masterwork saying, it's good, it's good. When he gets to mankind, he says, it's very good. But then look at Genesis chapter 2 verse 8. God says, it is not good for the man to be what? Alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now, don't read the word helper as in, oh, the woman is made to be subservient to the man. Not true at all. The same Hebrew word here translated as helper is elsewhere used in the Bible to describe God himself. Obviously, God is not subservient to us. God's paradigm for relationship is more than just alleviating loneliness. His idea is that we will serve one another in communal love. So this is huge and ancient and cosmic and mysterious and paradoxical. So let's zoom in and make things more practical, more down to earth. Turn in, your, turn in the right 
to the, or turn to the right in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 4. First book in the New Testament, Matthew chapter 4. You guys all right? You still with me? Yes. Great, thank you. Matthew chapter 4, beginning with verse 18. We read, As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, called Peter, and his brother Andrew. And they were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. Now, if you're at all familiar with this story, that line, I will send you out to fish for people, sometimes translated as I will make you fishers of men, has likely been stretched to the breaking point by familiarity. As silly and sentimental, sentimental sounding to us now, this expression was actually a first century idiom used by rabbis as an invitation to would-be apprentices. So Jesus is saying, if you come follow me, then I will teach you to, like me, capture the hearts and imaginations of people. Or put another way, follow me and I will make you a great teacher, just like me. Thus, in verse 20, we read, At once they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, his brother John. They were in a boat. They were with their father Zebedee, preparing their nets. Jesus called them. Immediately, they left the boat and their father and followed him. So what I'm getting at is that from the outset of what is often called Jesus's ministry or his mission, his first item of business is to gather for himself a community. Meaning, among other things, Jesus did not work solo, nor did he invite only one apprentice to follow him, but several. And Jesus is clear that though the invitation is wide, he's going, you, come follow me, you, come follow me, you, come follow me. The standard is very high. So turn just a couple of pages to the right to Matthew chapter 8. I'm going to have you guys flip around just a bit, but you'll be fine. Matthew 8 beginning with verse 18. The story goes, when Jesus saw the crowd around him, he gave orders to cross to the other side of the lake. Then a teacher of the law came to him and said, teacher, I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus replied, well, foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the son of man has no place to lay his head. Another disciple said to him, Lord, first let me go bury my father. But Jesus told him, follow me. Let the dead bury their own dead. So Jesus wants more than a kind of light touch, a superficial supper club. This isn't just a hangout. The expectation is intense, to say the least. But keep going. Look at the very next chapter, Matthew chapter 9, beginning with verse 9. Jesus went on from there. He saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I have come to call not the righteous, but sinners. Now, Jesus' innermost circle at this point in the story is populated by a wild spectrum of maturity and immaturity. So you've got upright, Torah-observing Jewish boys like Peter and Andrew, but now you've also got criminals and crooks in league with the oppressor like Matthew the tax collector and apparently many other tax collectors and sinners coming to hang out with Jesus. Why? Because these were the type of people prepared to follow Jesus. For Jesus, the initial level of maturity is secondary to the initial level of commitment. 
Look at the very next chapter, Matthew 10, beginning with verse 1. Jesus called his 12 disciples to him and gave them authority to drive out impure spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. These are the names of the 12 apostles. First Simon, who's called Peter, his brother Andrew, James, son of Zebedee, his brother John, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon the zealot and Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. Now, the reason I read all those names is because at this point, that group has gone from strangely disproportionate to wildly varied. You've got Simon the Zealot, who belonged to kind of a right-wing Jewish insurgency group that so believed in Israeli liberation that they employed violent guerrilla warfare tactics on German or Roman soldiers. Jeez, Freudian slip (laughs) on Roman soldiers. But Matthew, Matthew's in the exact same group and he was actually paid by Rome to take money from poor Jewish people. So that would be a little bit like Jesus wandering through a political protest in Portland and and tapping, you know, a masked baseball bat wielding member of Antifa and saying, hey, you come follow me. And then immediately turning around to an angry gun toting white Republican in a MAGA hat and saying, you too, come follow me, let's go. And then the three of them actually walk away together. But, but as crazy as that sounds, with Simon and Matthew, the juxtaposition is even more shocking. And now these two people essentially live and work together every single day. They sit across from one another at the dinner table. They learn the same lessons from the same teacher, rendering their old ways of life obsolete in, uh, together at once as they live in community. Eventually... Jesus will teach both kinds of disciples what it means to be great. Whoever wants to be great among you. What will Jesus say? The greatest among you must be the most outraged, attend the most protests, have have the nicest house, the most followers. The greatest among you must fight for your own rights or have the biggest military power, the best economy. No, the greatest among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. To live in this community that Jesus is building is to adopt an entirely new paradigm for life in the world, then and now, one that not only reimagines, but reverses the power dynamics that the rest of the world takes for granted. This is, throughout the teachings of Jesus, what it means to live in love. Jesus' community is the place where his apprentices learn to love God, one another, the world, their enemies, to be permeated by self-sacrificial love and to radiate that love outward back to God and to other people. And throughout the entire story of the Bible, human beings only learn and accomplish this in the context of community. But community is, as you know, and as we've already said, not a uniquely Christian word or concept. It's just that Jesus has an entirely unique conception of that idea. Community, I get, is a buzzword. Lots of people talk about, praise, and celebrate the idea of community. Think about, for example, the term online community. In Bo Burnham's uh, painfully terrible 2018 coming-of-age dramedy, Eighth Grade, 
lengthy sequences are expended depicting Kayla, the film's protagonist, sitting in her bedroom scrolling through a seemingly endless Instagram feed. And the film doesn't really comment on this as good or bad. It just is the rhythm of her life. And common to the film's glowing reviews was the celebration of its realism. Actress uh, Elsie Fisher noted that for Kayla, social media is almost religious. Author Robert Barker contrasted eighth grade with earlier coming-of-age communal films like 1982's you know, Fast Times at Ridgemont High or 2004's Mean Girls even. And he noted that rather than navigating high school cliques and social structures, the characters in eighth grade navigate, quote, a digital war of all against all, preening, pretending, and pontificating as much to themselves as to an anonymous audience. And this digital world drives people further apart from real intimacy and formation, not closer together. Obviously, social media is an ugly place, but it also creates this strange paradox in which a militant moral police arms themselves with barbed pretense in the ostensible effort to cleanse the world of anything they do not like, which creates legions of people conducting much of their lives in the digital world who, when beholding anything that they don't particularly care for, expect it to stop. In her fascinating book, iGen, Jean Twenge writes of the social media world, wanting to feel safe all of the time can also lead to wanting to protect against emotional upset. The concern with emotional safety, somewhat unique to iGen, that can include preventing bad experiences, sidestepping situations that might be uncomfortable, and avoiding people with ideas different from your own. That's where things get dicey, both for iGen and for older generations struggling to understand them. Now, think for a moment of your most meaningful long-term relationships with some of the people closest to you. And then ask yourself, have those relationships always been painless, uplifting, void of offense, positive, and emotionally safe? Anyone with a close friend of more than a couple of years will tell you, no. Any parent will tell you even faster, no. So being connected is not the same thing as having community. Neither is chemistry community. And what I mean is that finding someone who likes what you like is relatively easy, depending on your preferences, compared to navigating the painful ups and downs of life shared in a meaningful, ongoing sense. I like so many weird niche things that I have old friends in other states who only text me about those weird niche things. And that's great, but it's not community. It's easy to talk to people you agree with, especially if it's only about the things on which you agree. Because you can have community among people with whom you have little to no chemistry, and you can have chemistry with people with whom there is no real community. Those things are not synonyms. Sometimes people show up to church wanting uh, affinity groups, not communities. Not just our church, but church in general. I remember years and years ago getting a, a letter from someone who wanted to be placed preemptively in a community for something like, you know, single 30-something parents who live on the east side of the city and work in the medical profession. And I was like, ma'am, for all I know, you're it, you know. <laughs> So we tell people in our basics class, look, these people may be a lot like you or nothing like you, but it doesn't really matter because that's not why you're here. 
The only common denominator necessary for Jesus to build a community is Jesus himself. Meaning, to belong to the family of God, to the community of Jesus, you do not need a common social bracket or age group or a similar aesthetic preference or a shared ethnicity or the same political party or the same socioeconomic status. You only need Jesus as Lord. And on that, Jesus himself will build a community. And it's really that simple. What is community in a New Testament sense? It is simply the people with whom you share your life and discipleship in a real meaningful sense with vulnerability and accountability as you learn to follow Jesus together. So you can have friends that aren't your community. And you can have community amongst people that don't fit your traditional paradigm for friendship, meaning maybe you don't go to the movies every single weekend and enjoy the same records or TV shows, and you might not have the same political ideas or fashion sense, but you can still have community as long as you both believe Jesus is Lord. And community is the vehicle the arena in which we live out our discipleship to Jesus. It has always and only been done this way from Jesus himself to 2022 and on. In fact, some scholars like Scott McKnight go as far as to argue that the community of Jesus and what Jesus called the kingdom of God are essentially two ways of describing the exact same concept. So some spiritual formation thinkers make the case that the two most important spiritual disciplines are community and solitude because these two ideas are, the, are like containers that hold all other spiritual disciplines, which is why if you read the story of Jesus' life and the four biographies of his life, you see that he prioritized both things, community and solitude, one moving into the other and then back again throughout his ministry. Jesus did not spend every waking moment with his 12 friends. He often went to be with God in solitude, in the wilderness, and then back into community again. Now, it's been a while since we talked about solitude. There'll be more of that in the months ahead. Solitude and community are not the same thing as alone time versus social time. You can have alone time in spades and social time out to wazoo without ever having solitude or community. In my experience uh, personally and as a pastor of other people, I've observed widespread fear and unwillingness in myself and other people to actually embrace the fullness of either solitude or community. And it actually makes a ton of sense. Both of them are hard. They're costly, they're sometimes painful, they're complicated, and they ask you to relinquish some aspect of your own autonomy. So a lot of us try to sort of split the difference and settle for a flimsy affectation of either thing. So maybe, you know, we go to a coffee shop alone with a journal to think and pray, which is great, um, don't get me wrong, but that's not solitude. That's not the wilderness. In solitude... One strips away every ornamental creature comfort and willingly lays down all their empty posturing and all their security blanket pretense to be honest and vulnerable before God without anything to distract or comfort them from the process. No coffee, no light jazz, no jog, no afternoon stroll, nothing to distract or ornament, just the silent stillness and God. 
In Darius Martyr's incredible 2019 drama, The Sound of Metal, Ruben, who's the drummer of a touring experimental metal duo, he suddenly loses his hearing one afternoon on the road. And then Ruben, under protest, agrees to stay at this rural shelter for deaf recovering addicts run by a man named Joe. And Ruben finds during his tenure there that he just cannot sit still. He cannot handle the silence. He cannot embrace either solitude or community. One afternoon, Joe catches Reuben on a ladder repairing a roof and calls him into his office. Hey, Joe. What's that all about, Ruben? Oh, your roof? I was fixing your roof. It's like one of the eaves is, I was trying to fix your roof. You don't need to fix anything here. I've got a little uh, assignment for you, okay? You get up early, right? Yeah, pretty early, yeah. I'll have hot coffee waiting for you at 5.30. Early enough for you? I don't know, I guess. Okay, five. And I'll uh, provide a room for you. Or four. And there's nothing that needs to be accomplished in this room. All I want you to do is just sit. For Reuben, uh, this is a terrifying assignment. I guess for some of you it might be as well. And that's exactly how you determine your profound spiritual need for solitude. If you can't sit still, can't be alone, need an activity, need to get out of the house and be with people and noise and errands and playdates and hangouts and dinner and activities, if even your alone time needs pageantry, a coffee shop, a journal, music, something, a jog, being alone with a book or movie, sure, that's fine, or alone with a cup of coffee or a nice scenic run through the park, no problem, but to just sit, terrifying. And if you feel that itchiness, that squirm inside, that is likely the spiritual discipline most needed in this season of your apprenticeship. But that's part of another sermon. Others of you, and maybe even some within that same group, feel that same apprehensive cringe at the idea of really being vulnerable with other people, being committed and accountable to other people. Not just a social gathering, not just gossip and small talk, not just a book club or a trip to the movies or to the coffee shop or someplace where you can hide and be a wallflower and contribute on your terms, but a place where someone can really know what's going on in you, the worst stuff, and call you on your sin and bless you, the real you, warts and all, and pray for you and call you up 
into greater discipleship at the expense of your comfort. Again, if that makes you twitch, that is likely what is most needed for your growth and maturity because that is where we follow Jesus. But in an effort to avoid both, many adopt pseudo-community and pseudo-solitude. People who show up to church or are in a community or have Christian friends, but they don't actually step into the full messy vulnerability of shared discipleship, nor the full naked vulnerability of solitude. And this can happen for any number of reasons, but three in particular seem more common than others. The first being individualism. We are Americans. Individualism is the air that we breathe. Writer and professor David Brooks argues that we live in a culture of hyper-individualism. There is always a tension between self and society. Over the past 60 years, we have swung too far toward the self. The only way out is to rebalance, to build a culture that steers people toward relation, community, and get this, commitment. The things we most deeply yearn for, yet undermine with our hyper-individualistic way of life. Again, notice the word commitment. In my years working at, leading, and planting, starting this church, I can tell you that an unwillingness to commit is easily the most ubiquitous toxin to pollute both the gathering and the small group format. Because to actually embrace community, one must relinquish part, not all, but part of their autonomy. They must open themselves to the vulnerability of loving voices speaking into their decisions and their actions and their lives. You have to commit to one thing, which inevitably means saying no to other things. So you end up with people who are afraid to do this or unwilling to do this, so they show up, but they don't pitch in. Or, or they talk at community, but they don't do the practices. Or they come to community night, but not to the Sunday gathering. Or they come to the Sunday gathering, but not to the community night. Who, in other words, will not surrender part of their autonomy in self-sacrificial love for the good of the family. Remember, I think this is something we often misunderstand. The high ask of commitment is not about you being subservient to the ruthless demands of the church, to me, to Cam, to God. It is about us needing you. When you refuse to give the family of God consistent, faithful presence, you are withholding whatever it is that God has to offer through you and through your consistent, faithful presence. When we refuse to commit, we make church into a, a veritable buffet table, a product to be pillaged and consumed. I'll have this, but not this. I'll give this, but only when it works for my schedule. I want what I like, not what I don't like, and I will give what I prefer to give on my terms. And don't misunderstand me. I am not in any way saying that unless you are the perfect model of church and community attendance and, and participation, then you are somehow not really a part of things, not really a Christian, whatever. Do not hear this as condemnation. I have been through all of it myself. Communities breaking down, flakiness from me, listlessness, apathy, frustration. I mean, you can't be in community for eight years and not face all of those things and and. Uh, further those things yourself. All of us have. 
So if you don't fit the perfect model right this second, it does not mean that you are some hopeless failure. You don't really belong to this church or this family, not at all. We are all over the map in terms of our discipleship, our journey of spiritual formation, what we think about Jesus, our emotional and spiritual maturity. And again, this church, this family is a safe place to figure those things out for slow formation in the context of family. But I do want to say this again and again and again. Remember, Jesus does not use initial maturity as a qualification to become a disciple, but he does use commitment. Remember, the prerequisite to following Jesus is first die, and then you can come follow me. The idea is that on a journey, when you follow someone, you are going somewhere. We are moving from uncommitted to committed, from the consumerist, what's best for me, to contributive, what is best for the entire family first. But again, we all know, believe me, that the journey is complicated and messy. Ask my community, but don't really. They'll only have good stories. So even though the standard is very high, it is not idealistic. In 1938, uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote what is largely to this day considered one of the landmark works on Christian community. And in it, he argues this, the sooner this shock of disillusionment comes to an individual and to a community, the better for both. Every human wish dream that is injected into the Christian community is a hindrance to genuine community and must be banished if genuine community is to survive. He who loves the dream of community more than the community itself becomes a destroyer of the latter, even though his personal intentions may be ever so honest and earnest and sacrificial. The man who fashions a visionary ideal of community demands that it be realized by God, by others, and by himself. He enters the community of Christians with his demands, sets up his own law, and judges the brethren and God and himself accordingly. So typically, when this happens, community works itself in a kind of cycle. There's the honeymoon phase, when everything is new and exciting and some momentum is being established. But that eventually tapers off and plateaus and seems less exciting. Where's all the breakthrough? Or maybe you become content to sort of hide in the group and everything is fine just so long as no one attempts, you know, real vulnerability and accountability with you. It's fine if they do it, but you kind of want to sit back and you're still judging things and figuring it out. And then eventually that leads to not much of anything. So apathy sets in. And then apathy, after a long enough time, hardens and becomes antipathy. And you get frustrated that this isn't working. That people are so annoying. And their problems continue to rear their ugly heads. And you start to think that this isn't worth it. We can do better. Or maybe we'd be better off on our own with no community at all. Or we get afraid that to hang around, you'll eventually have to actually open up. And so there's two choices, bail or accept both the imperfections of your community and your need for it and re-engage. And in that acceptance of both the pain and imperfection of community eventually comes health, which can often become the honeymoon phase all over again. Community is messy and complicated, so there are all sorts of very valid problems and inevitably surface when people share life and discipleship. Why? Because they are people. 
But there is also an avalanche of community issues that bloom from a simple recipe of a person or persons who enter a community with an expectation, it should be this way, and are undone when that expectation, often unspoken, is not met. Well, we should all be best friends, or we should all be crying every single week, or we should all be maturing at exactly the same rate, or we should be taking all our vacations together, or it should be like my last church, or it shouldn't be like my last church, or the leadership should be involved in this specific way, or my community leader should be doing this specific thing. And so the idealist is notorious for migrating from one community to another in search of that perfect elusive group that checks all the boxes but doesn't seem to exist. Spoiler alert, it doesn't. The same thing is true of churches in the broad generic sense. When people come up to me and say, man, I like this church because my last church was so awful in these ways. I often tell them, that's great, thank you, but believe me, give us a second, we will disappoint you. In fact, it's our, that's our new tagline, Van City. <laughs> we will disappoint you. Obviously, I'm kidding about the tagline, not about disappointing people. But People populate and lead this church. So it is inevitably imperfect. Now, we're not resigned to our imperfections by any means, but we are certainly aware of them. Believe me when I say that I am really, really trying to teach the Bible and theology with integrity, and I do believe all the things I say up here, and I think that they're right. But inevitably, because I'm human and still learning and in process, I know that some things I say will end up being wrong, but I don't know which. So I commit to keep learning, to accountability, to change as the Spirit directs and as my community and the other leaders speak into my life, to repent and mature, to become more like Jesus all the time, knowing that that will be a messy journey. And knowing that can be scary. And that gives way to the third great hindrance of community, which is intimidation. Actually knowing other people and being known by them. Actually hauling out the beauty and ugliness of your discipleship journey for other people, not just so that they can see it, but so that they can comment on it and hold you accountable for what's in your life. That freaks people out. If you have had any kind of meaningful long-term relationship, you know it eventually becomes impossible to uphold pretense. Next month, uh, Abby and I will celebrate our 15th wedding anniversary. So we, yeah, hooray, thank you. Yep, that's right. We dated for three years before that. So having been together for 18 years now, she knows all of my most embarrassing aspects of my personality, all my brokenness. It's way too late to convince her that I am someone that I am not. But she's also the person with whom I have the most friendship, the most intimacy, and the most love. And we've hurt one another and made mistakes and repented and had joy and beauty and pain and hardship. And the same is true of my closest friends. You arrive at the wall of one another's crappiness and you have to either make it through somehow in love or else just give up, turn around and go back on your own. And this is why so often there are people who have friendships for a season and then there's eventually some kind of falling out and then on to another person before the cycle repeats itself. That's why I think the two most important components of a healthy community of disciples of Jesus are vulnerability and accountability. 
In his book on community, M. Scott Peck writes this, there can be no vulnerability without risk and there can be no community without vulnerability. There can be no peace and ultimately no life without community. In other words, you have to have all three. When people actually communicate, actually share their lives, things get risky. You can and will get hurt and the people in your community will hold you accountable for the things you do and say. And please listen, you will not mature as a disciple of Jesus without vulnerability and accountability. With only vulnerability, you might feel pretty good about being open, but there's no calling one another to a higher standard, and so there's no real change. And if you attempt accountability without vulnerability, nothing really happens because you're just correcting one another with no real access to the other person's heart or mind or life. You have to have both things. We spend a lot of time warning people about the inevitable messiness of community, But I think personally, having been in the same one for eight years now, we need to spend just as much time celebrating that exact same messiness. Do you think that people in recovery groups like AA who are experiencing real transformation from vulnerability and accountability and getting health and wellness and changing their lives sit around going, oh, I wish it wasn't so messy? There is no sanitized, sterilized form of true vulnerability and accountability. It is inherently messy. And one of the many ironies of the deconstructionist fad is that in the effort to clear away anything that you don't like, anything that requires any self-denial, one inevitably clears away community itself. Because what you're usually left with is a digital self-affirming echo chamber, a sad, lonely screen world that says what you want to hear right back to you. And I've learned over the years that combating loneliness is costly, And it's intimidating, but I can't have true community with the people I love unless they know me and I know them and we find some way to endure the complicated messiness of it all. We are at both our best and our worst with the people we love most. Ask Abby or ask my kids, or ask my closest friends. I have said and done all the meanest things to the people I love the most, and the people I love the most are the ones who call me on it. Thus, there are so many people who go to church and have Christian friends, but yet experience such deep loneliness because they have yet to plumb the depths of true vulnerability and accountability. The New Testament uses the term one another, over and over and over again when it teaches us how to live in community. Think about some of those texts. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Live in harmony with one another. Love one another. Stop passing judgment on one another. Accept one another as Christ accepted you. Instruct one another. Greet one another with a holy kiss. And that's just Romans. There are 59 such commands in the New Testament. And look, All of them assume, take it for granted, that if you follow Jesus, you are also conducting your discipleship in the context of community. So inevitably, there is one another. But it also assumes that this community is messy and that this is the way we learn love. Or else Paul wouldn't have all these corrective instructions. Look, do this for one another. Love one another. It has to be said, accept one another. He assumes that we live in community and assumes that we get it wrong sometimes. Professor Joseph Hellerman argued that 
Spiritual formation, please listen to this. Spiritual formation occurs primarily in the context of community. People who remain connected with their brothers and sisters in the local church almost invariably grow in self-understanding and they mature in their ability to relate in healthy ways to God and to their fellow human beings. This is especially the case for those courageous Christians who stick it out through the often messy process of interpersonal discord and conflict resolution. Long-term interpersonal relationships are the crucible of genuine progress in the Christian life. People who stay also grow. People who leave do not grow. It is a simple but profound biblical reality that we both grow and thrive together or we do not grow much at all. We talk so much at Van City about training about you know, practicing the things of Jesus. In this sense, community is the training ground. It is the arena, the dojo, the gym, the, the swamp and Dagobah, whatever. And to draw out that metaphor, in that gym, in that dojo, you fall down, you get hurt, you screw up, and you do all this work and do all this hurting just to learn the dang thing. And for us, that thing is love. Thus, Jesus opens the invitation wide to anyone and everyone willing to join his school of love, and that is community. This will be the place where you train to love, learn relationships, get it wrong, apologize, repent, start over, and do it all again. At Van City, at our particular church, we realize this in two different ways. The Sunday gathering, what we're doing right now, and Van City communities. They are, we believe, two dimensions of the same family. Be here on a Sunday, faithfully, consistently, and be in a Van City community the same way. If you're not in one yet, you can register for basics, talk to Cam or Ariel and learn more about how to get involved. They'll tell you. The funny thing about constantly discussing community, which is inevitable when you follow Jesus, is that it's impossible to avoid the pitfalls of presenting an ideal or an objective-sounding rule book, even though I've done my best to be balanced and nuanced up here. So however this finds you, if you're all in or you were last year but not so much anymore or you're sick of this sermon, listen for one more second before we end. I honestly have no interest in guilting you into a community. It doesn't really work anyway. And frankly, I feel no rush to herd you into one thing or another. I don't believe that our particular model for community is the only model or even necessarily the best model for everyone per se. I think it's the right one and the best one for our family. So all I want to say is that you're invited. My hope and prayer is honestly not for a church that has the most people in communities or the best attendance on Sunday evening, though both of those things do matter. Both of those things are indications of where we're at in terms of commitment and maturity as disciples of Jesus. But my hope and prayer truly and genuinely is that we would consider the teachings of Jesus and give it a shot together not by ourselves, but as a family. Frankly, this is not empty posturing or, you know, kind of fake self-effacing modesty. I need you guys to follow Jesus well, and you need us to follow Jesus well. We need one another to follow Jesus well. I want us to 
take all of this seriously, all of those one another commands, and learn what it means to love one another, have patience one another, learn to accept the messiness of this journey on the narrow road and help one another to walk it, not withholding, but giving of ourselves for the sake of the family of God. We need one another. So may we learn to follow Jesus together. Let's pray and ask God's Spirit to teach us how. Thanks for listening to Vance City. You can connect with us and find more teachings and available resources at www.vancity.church. You can support Vance City financially at vancity.church/give.